Hello, I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project, radio for the seriously curious. And today I want to invite you to think small, smaller than cells, smaller than molecules, smaller even than atoms. We're going to be making one of our periodic forays into theoretical physics, this time particle physics. And unlike some of our past shows, where we've explored the most exotic fringes of physics theory, things like extra dimensions, black holes, and string theory, today we're going to go back to basics. We're going to get an introduction to what's called the standard model of particle physics. It's the most complete and confirmed picture that we have of the subatomic realm, and it's one of the crowning achievements of modern science. And though that name, the standard model, may make it sound like it's tame and pedestrian, Believe me, it's not. It's full of natural wonders and feats of intellectual daring, all tied together by some ingenious organizing principles. And to introduce those principles, we're going to be joined by Bruce Schum, professor at UC Santa Cruz and a real-life particle physicist himself. He's also the author of a book on the Standard Model. It's called Deep Down Things, The Breathtaking Beauty of Particle Physics. It works its way all the way up from the early discoveries of quantum mechanics at the beginning of the 20th century to higher-level concepts like gauge theory and hidden symmetry, pausing now and then to admire the majesty of it all. Well, we're going to follow the same path here on this show in our own humble layman's fashion, and we're going to keep it all accessible because, as usual, I'm going to ask the dumb questions. So, particle physics for the rest of us. That's straight ahead on the 7th Avenue Project. Bruce, thanks a lot for coming in. My pleasure. We're going to talk today about the standard model of particle physics, which uh, is, I think, the main subject of your book, Deep Down Things. Yeah, that's right. Let's start with the name. It sounds pretty boring. Yeah, exactly. I was just seeing that look in your face and seeing <laughs> kind of a, a glaze pass over when you, you want to use the term standard model. But uh, in terms of you know the, the sorts of, of things that are in, inside of it and and uh, the way that mathematics comes in and, and speaks to the way the universe is fit together is not really that standard a way of looking at the universe for both of us. Well, you, well, you know, it, it, it sounds boring in that it, it sounds as though, oh, it's, you know, the everyday model. It's the humdrum standard issue model, when in fact it's really extraordinary. It involves all kinds of amazing leaps in reasoning. It involves all kinds of non-intuitive moves on the part of physicists to work it out. And uh, I would call it the mind-blowing model myself. Well, you can get much more mind-blowing when you get into 11 dimensions and small extra dimensions that are wrapped around your finger and so forth. But um, it is correct that uh, it does involve a number of leaps. And it, it starts all the way back in the very earliest modern physics, special relativity of, of Einstein, developed in 1905. And then uh, Bohr and Schrodinger's quantum mechanics developed in the 20s and, and relativistic quantum mechanics uh, all these people come into it, all the way up through Feynman, and then uh, the, the the later architects of the Standard Model, uh, Glashow and Weinberg and and Salam. All these people come into it. But you start with quantum mechanics, and, and those who have read it all in the popular literature about quantum mechanics know just how unusual and counterintuitive quantum mechanics can be. And that that's that's certainly part of this, but that's really the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, just the. Um, the nature of the, the sorts of ideas and thoughts that go into developing the standard model. So the standard model is the, is the product really of um, almost a century's worth of labor on the part of physicists from the early 20th century through, what, 
the 60s, 70s? Is that when most of the work on the standard model was done? That, that's right. Up into uh, into the mid-70s, I would say, when, when the details were, were being worked out. But I, I might go back a little further than that. I mean, I think I would go back to uh, the work of Faraday and Maxwell. So Faraday was a fellow who really gave us a, a very good empirical basis and helped us to free up our thinking a little bit about electromagnetism, electricity and magnetism. This is Michael Faraday, uh, English scientist, really a self-taught scientist. Yes, that's yeah. correct, yes. And so this would have been back in the 1830s, and he uh, championed the notion of a field. Think of uh, putting your comb through your hair, and there's a force, right, on a dry day. The, the hair stands on it, and it tries to reach the comb. There's some sort of force that's pulling that and and, and causing that to happen. And Faraday really championed the notion that that force is due to a field, that the particles of electricity in the hair set up a field that permeates space that then has, has an effect on the particles of electricity in the comb. And that is what really kind of freed up our thinking uh, that allowed us to have a, a view of physics that led uh, then to Maxwell's putting together electricity and magnetism into a unified theory. And unified theory is critical here because that's the standard model is yet the next step in the unification of the different effects that we, we know of in nature. So you mentioned one of the key words there, Michael Faraday, uh, coming up with this idea of a field. And um, the standard model of particle physics, our subject today, is a quantum field theory. What, what exactly is a quantum field theory? <laughs> well, a, a quantum field theory is just a... a a theory of forces, right, so let's back away from the term field, a theory of forces of the causative agents in nature, the things that cause part, thing A to affect thing B that are based on quantum mechanical principles, and in particular, the exchange of these individual particles. Uh -huh. Well, that's, uh, that's the next key word in our little exposition here, particles. Sounds self-explanatory. I picture little balls. <laughs> My image of the universe at small scales is a bunch of billiard balls banging together. But what really is a particle? Well, uh, really, uh, it's just anything that you can say, look, there's something there. You know, in quantum mechanics, there's no difference between a particle and a wave. All particles have wave-like properties, and all waves have particle-like properties. And so, strictly speaking, if you look at the mathematical formalism, in quantum mechanics, a particle is just a bunch of waves that are localized in space. There's no wave through most of space, and then you look, and all of a sudden you see something waving, something associated with a, with this presence that has a waviness, and it's localized in a region of space. And since it's localized in a region of space, it can behave like a localized particle. So um, you, when you think about particles, don't think literally the way I do of little balls bouncing around? Uh, no, I'm I'm a human being, and I'm, <laughs> I'm stuck with through my, uh, you know, my experiences and my preconceived notions. So yeah, I, I tend to think of them. That's more natural when things bounce off of each other. You like to think of them in terms of billiard balls, and so that I'm afraid that's my intuitive take. But you know, when I sit down and have to think about these things at a more rigorous level, mm -hmm. then I'll pull out the waves. So when you're really um, thinking about these things strictly as a physicist. For you, a particle is never a little sphere of matter, microscopic though it may be. It's always a wave, a localized wave. Well, the, you always have to um, realize that ultimately, fundamentally, 
That's what it is. And there are times when if you ignore that, you're going to not be able to make progress, uh, get wrong answers, uh, to put it bluntly. Because this entity, I, I want to throw out the word particle myself and just <clears throat> call it a wave. This wave can be either localized in some circumstances. It can be here and not there. Or it can be delocalized. It can be everywhere, right? That, that's right. If you uh, prepare a particle in a certain way, so if you, a, a, a particle beam, say if you prepare it in a certain way, you have very little information about where that particle is in space. Um, although you may know a lot about how fast it's moving, you can know very little about where it is in space. So that's right. So sometimes they're not very localized. Um, but when the when this object, this quantum mechanical object, this physical object, because all physics is quantum mechanics, uh, when it interacts with something else, and that, of course that's the only way that we can tell the thing is there, when it interacts with something else as a particle, then it's going to interact locally. Well, I think we're beating around one bush right now, which is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Yes. You said something about the relationship between position or location on the one hand and momentum or motion on the other hand. Now, my understanding is that the Heisenberg un uncertainty principle says when a thing is truly localized, then its momentum is indefinite. It's not exact. When a thing's momentum is really precisely fixed, that its position is not, so that it's, no, it's kind of everywhere. That's right. I mean, if, if a particle is probed by an experiment or by accident, by, say, absorbing light, in a way that defines its position, mm -hmm. then it, it, that defines its position extremely precisely, then its speed becomes indefinite. Mm -hmm. If, on the other hand, if it's probed either on purpose or by accident, <laughs> in a way that constrains with extreme precision its speed, then it position becomes unlocalized. So when you say probed, um, that suggests an agent, uh, you know, a person or some intelligent being probing something, but you really mean interaction, don't you? Yeah. So for instance, sunlight shines on it. Mm -hmm. That probes it. Uh -huh. um, you know, if, if it reflects that light, um, and that would localize it. So it could be an accidental probe, or it could be an intentional probe, <laughs> where some highly overpaid, overfunded particle physicist is attempting <laughs> to do an experiment, uh, you know, that will uh, localize the position of a, of a particular particle as it traverses through her detector or whatever. So this is, this is one of the, the really amazing leaps of logic uh, that uh, is required to understand or to deal with uh, quantum physics, and that is that when things are not interacting... A lot about them is ill-defined. Position is not exactly defined. Um, momentum may not be exactly defined. When it interacts, such as when it interacts with a measuring device that you and I are looking at to figure out its position or its momentum, or when it interacts with another particle, even if no human being is operating that particle, right? Then things become precise. Until then, they're kind of a range of possibilities. That's right. That seems to be the case ex experimentally. But for the most part, we can get through a discussion of the standard model without really a deep understanding <laughs> of the uncertainty principle. With, with that said, um, it certainly is one of the more f fascinating aspects of quantum mechanics, and its epistemological and philosophical implications are deep and subtle and nuanced. And one can talk about those at length. Um, they don't really lie at the heart of the book. 
duly noted. Um, but let's just say that uh, regarding particles and what they are, my idea that they are always like billiard balls, that they are always solid little objects that are here, not there, that have position and uh, move around in exactly a way that you can follow, is not true. Those kinds of definite statements about particles can only be made once they've been measured, once they've interacted with other particles. That's right. But for understanding the standard model, we can really divide the fundamental particles, the particles that we haven't seen anything inside of. They just they are just indivisible. Yeah. As far as we know, you can divide those into two classes. Let's do that. And one of these classes are a class called fermions, which you don't need to know that term. And these we can just think of as being billiard balls. And the others, bosons, and again, you don't need to remember that term, those we can think of as being wavy things. Mm -hmm. Both of these classes have wave properties, and both have particle properties. But for the first class, for the fermions, those are things that we say make up matter. Mm -hmm. So uh, electron Mm -hmm. is one of those. And for virtually anything we talk about today, it's the billiard ball-like aspects of the electron (laughs) that we're going to be worried about. You know, and then protons we now know are made of these things called quarks, and quarks are the billiard ball-like things. So they make the the the, the fermions, the, the billiard ball-like things. They make up matter, and and they they make up hard things. You know, I'm looking at you, Robert. And I, you're made of these fermions, uh, and and you know you're you're particle-like. I don't see you waving around. You know, maybe at later times in the interview, I will begin <laughs> to see you waving around, but probably something else. So. So let's think of, of you and your constituents as being largely billiard ball-like. But I'm seeing you, and I'm seeing you because I'm, I'm in, in the view of quantum field theory, I'm exchanging these other things, these bosons, these wavy things. In particular, I'm exchanging a lot of photons with you. Those photons, the particles of light, the magical particles of light, are the wavy-like things. And, and so there's a lot of that waviness between you and me that's allowing the information from 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 you to get to me as you nod your head that's being conveyed by these photons so let's think of it in those in those terms great let's do that and and let me see if i've got this right um professor um fermions uh named after enrico fermi right are the constituents of matter the things like electrons quarks which make up protons and neutrons those other fundamental ingredients of an atom uh there's other kinds of fermions like neutrinos and things like that and then you those are the those are the stuff of the universe. Then to essentially make things happen, to have any effect on each other, you need this sort of currency, you know, that things need to exchange energy. And that's carried by the bosons. They're almost like the money of the universe, right? We we can we can go there and see where it takes us, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so when uh you know when you see me that is a certain kind of boson a photon a light you know or electromagnetic boson that's going from me to you and you're picking it up with your eye so my boson the boson that's bounced off my fermion has gone over and bounced off your fermions and you've registered that yes that's right now, this is all a great <laughs> oversimplification but in fact it's all stuff and a lot of the universe is the stuff of the universe is photons, but for the purpose of of the discussion of the standard model, let's let's look at it that way. Mm-hmm. That we have the stuff, the quarks and the electrons, and then we have money, the exchange, mm-hmm. um, which we're learning more and more every year now is evanescent. Let's let's say, and yes, and that's 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 a good analogy. Mm. Um, 
So and that, that's what we're exchanging. And so we have the stuff that's exchanging these bosons. They're, they're transferring energy, transferring information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's think of it that way. Yeah. Great. So our, our quantum field theory, as we're working it out, has things we call particles. Uh, they come in two types. One typically makes up matter. The other is a way of transferring or conveying forces. The photon conveys the electromagnetic force. And by the way, there are four forces, and I know there's some complications there. Maybe we could say there are three forces, but classically we're taught that there are four forces. There's gravity, there's electromagnetism, there's the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. And each of those forces has its own types of bosons that convey that force. Correct. Hey, am I doing good so far? Pretty well, yeah. (laughs) So electromagnetism, which includes radio waves and microwaves and light, that's conveyed by photons bouncing around. Correct. And the strong nuclear force, that's conveyed by? The strong nuclear force is conveyed by, well, what, what, what is it that, that glues the quarks together? It must be gluons. Gluons, great. So we call them gluons, yeah. So some of these things have fun names. Uh, physicists do have a sense of fun. And uh, the strong nuclear force is what holds these quarks together in particles like protons and neutrons. Yes, and that's right. super strong. <laughs> It's so strong, in fact, that you write that you never find an isolated quark. That force is so strong that every quark is glued to another quark or other quarks, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, if you were to, you know, somehow, and I don't know how much energy it would take, but it would be far beyond any nuclear bomb we've ever set off to separate two quarks. That, that's right. I mean, what you have to really ask how much, how hot would it have to get for that to happen. Yeah. And uh, that, that heat was only seen uh, a very short time after the Big Bang, and that, that degree of heat, other than being produced in particle accelerators and in ra- a few random cosmic ray collisions, you know, a- a- astrophysical collisions every now and then, is just not, I mean, it's a heat way beyond what it would take to uh, induce fusion energy. Mm. Yeah, it's mm. a heat, way, way beyond that. That's that's right. It's a tremendous amount of, of motion uh, energy that each particle would have to have in order to fly apart like that. Well, if you were able to generate that amount of energy to separate a couple of quarks, uh, I gather that that state of th- affairs wouldn't last very long because all that energy would just create two more quarks that would pair That's up right. with the, the individual right. quarks. Well, I, I should say that people are trying to do just that, of course, with you know our, our favorite uh, toy, the LHC. Large Hadron Collider. That's right. They're trying to uh, uh, accelerate nuclei, not not just protons, but nuclei, and smash nuclei together. In fact... As uh, at this moment, the proton collisions have stopped, and the nuclear collisions are getting started right now for a few months. And they're trying to do that. They're trying to get an, an energy so high, a temperature so high in that collision, that they create something called a quark gluon plasma. Which now that we know what quarks and gluons are, maybe that'll uh, make a little sense. I mean, it's it's a case where the the, the internal energy, the temperature is so high that actually allows these things to break these bonds for a very short instant. And we want to see what that looks like, and we want to see if that, you know if that if if the behavior of that matter is, is along the lines that we would expect, and then among other things, feed that back into our conceptions of what the early universe was like. So you're saying, contrary to to what I just uh, said, that maybe we humans can generate enough energy to separate quarks. I didn't know that was even possible, but it might happen inside the Large Hadron Collider, which, by the way, is this. Huge particle accelerator that's been uh, uh, operating uh, just for the past year or so uh, on the border between uh, France and Switzerland near Geneva. 
Uh, and of course, there's a lot of news about this, and we'll talk about some of that a little later in this conversation. But you're saying they might actually be able to separate quarks ever so much? Well, you can't uh, claim you've discovered quarks until you've separated them. So this is something that we've actually been doing since the late 1960s. Um, but in in the, those early experiments, which were actually done up here at Stanford University. At uh, um, Stanford Linear Accelerator. Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, that's right. Uh, in individual collisions of electrons, very rare individual collisions of electrons with protons and neutrons, you know, they, they just happen to get it right on. The electron just hit that proton right on. It actually was able to knock an individual quark out. Now, that quark didn't go off into the universe as a quark. It immediately looked around and said, wait, wait, wait I'm naked. I need to dress up. <laughs> and it, it did that by pulling some other quarks out of the quantum mechanical vacuum and, and, and getting it into these states that you're talking about where they all have another quark nearby so they don't feel unclothed. But for an instant, an instant that would be on the order of 10 to the minus 24 seconds, that quark lived alone by itself. What we're doing now, or I shouldn't say we, but what my colleagues in nuclear physics are doing now at the Large Hadron Collider starting this week is to try to generate a state where there's enough heat that basically these entire nuclei, or large fractions of these entire nuclei melt into this these unpaired quark states for an instant of time. So you get a large statistical ensemble, if you will, a large ensemble that behaves not as individual particles, but as a gas mm -hmm. of these particles. And that, if you do create a gas out of these quarks and gluons, that's going to be a lot different than a gas you make of just ordinary everyday atoms. Mm. And so what they're trying to do basically is to study the properties of this quark-gluon gas. We call it a plasma. Now, from what you've told me about the, the strong nuclear force, it's so strong that these quarks couldn't get very far apart, could they? And they couldn't really hang out alone for very long. Right. That's right. They can't leave the confines of this nuclear dimension, basically. So they can't uh, really get out 10 to the minus 14 meters at the, at the most. It would be the size of this cloud. And the only way, you can't sit there and look at it uh, with a microscope as this plasma it evaporates, basically. The theoretical scientists' predictions about the nature of this plasma, but the observables that the experimental experimentalists would see are the evaporative products uh, that, that come out of this plasma. So they would be just the normal everyday, if, if you will. I mean, to particle physicists, the normal everyday particles where the quarks are not by themselves, but they come flying off of this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> uh, a lot of what you guys, uh, and I mean, you particle physicists, um, glean from particle accelerators is not uh, direct view of the interaction or the particle in question. It's sort of secondhand evidence. It's sort of like seeing the remains of a crime scene or something like that. That's right. I mean, the things that we're looking for, by and large, are very short-lived. I mean, they live on these timescales of 10 to the minus 23 seconds, uh, you know, some, some as, as long as a luxurious 10 to the minus, uh, well, what's a picosecond? 10 to the minus 12 seconds. Um, so we never see them directly, but we do see their direct descendants as they decay and and we measure those descendants their directions and their uh, masses really, really their their directions and their energies very precisely and that allows us to get a very precise inference about what it is that produced them mm -hmm. so we don't see them directly but in in some ways when do you ever see anything directly um you go out and and you you look at a marble on the street 
what are you seeing? You're, you're seeing, as we discussed before, what you're seeing is sunlight reflected off of that. So in some sense, we see things no less directly than, than, uh, than somebody would just every day, you know, at work in the kitchen, looking, looking at their pots and pans and food. Uh, it's just that <clears throat> it doesn't go through the standard channels of perception. Mm-hmm. Uh, in quite the same way. Well, well, didn't Plato have it right? We're just all stuck in the cave watching shadows on the back of the cave. You're entering into philosophy now that, <laughs> you know. I, you're a physicist. Being a physicist well, at this level, you have to get okay. sort of philosophical. Well, I would say more time. that Kant had it correct. So. Kant had it correct. Well, in other words, we're looking at the structures of our own understanding as much as we're looking at the phenomenal world out there. Well, we're looking at the phenomenal world uh, By way of the question is whether we're looking also at yeah. the noumenal world. Excuse me, I misused the word phenomenal. Yeah, it's been a while since I read yeah. the critique of pure reason. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, but um, you know, I I I think that uh, uh, of of the philosophers that I've read, and I've read some because I went to a college that required a year of philosophy, and only because of that, uh, I've, I've read some of the philosophers that, that Kant uh, has the most direct applicability, if you will. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to physics, but uh, you know. I don't see that these two fields are synergistic in any way. I mean, I don't think physicists learn much from Kant, but they do perhaps illuminate some of some of the, the, the notions from Kant. Um, not not that I don't think that Kant was a great thinker, and, and his reading is fascinating. Uh, it actually may help not so much in terms of allowing physicists to think of the next experiment, but perhaps allowing them to think of of what they've learned. Um, I think it has helped me to convey physics, to have the notion of Kant of of, of the noumenal world that it is a real world and a and a phenomenal world, which is the observable part of that. Mm-hmm. I think that having that as a backdrop in which to interpret quantum mechanics, and I may be getting into trouble with it with a few colleagues who pictures are flashing in my head right now. I think that having that as a framework to interpret quantum mechanics has actually helped me somewhat. Mm. Well, the but, uh, some of the great Greats uh, of uh, early 20th century physics had philosophical leanings, Heisenberg being one of them, I think, and, and Bohr to some extent, because philosophy was standard training in those days for those guys. And I know there are physicists who, uh, if I can tell a personal anecdote, um, I actually uh, had dinner at the same table as Steven Weinberg about a year ago. Uh, Nobel Prize-winning physicist who made major contributions to the to standard. One of the architects. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, we were talking about philosophy, and he said, I think he said this. I, I hope I'm not misquoting him. I've written that philosophy has nothing to say to physics, and I still believe that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, from my experience, Steven Weinberg is somebody who actually does have a real depth and uh yeah, you know, I I wouldn't pretend to to be on the same plane as him. I mean, I've had a, a few email exchanges with him when I was writing my book. I was trying to get him to in, endorse the book, and and he very uh, politely declined. He said, you know, I can't do. I get so many requests to to read and endorse books. But by the way, this title, "Deep Down Things," is that from the Hopkins poem? He knew Gerard Manley Hopkins. That, that's correct. Yes. And, and can you quote the line from which that uh, phrase comes? Uh, I think the line again. This was something that was that was um, developed. Uh, I mean, the, the title was chosen by, by my editor, but I think the line is "There is a dearest freshness deep down things." Yeah, I wasn't aware of of Hopkins poetry in, until the book was titled, and I looked at it. And he is indeed uh, quite a profound and accomplished poet. Uh, 
but uh, I wasn't familiar with his work before mm. before this, which which is a great discredit to my own intellectual breadth. Uh, <laughs> but in any regard, uh, I believe that's the line. Yeah. Well, um, you know, we've gotten a little far afield from the, the basics that we were going to get into in this conversation, but I'm okay with that. I'm really okay with uh, getting into philosophy and even poetry as we go along. Uh, uh, we may come back to that. But before we do, uh, let's just say that we, we are again talking about this uh, quantum field theory uh, that is the standard model of particle physics. And so far, we've managed to make it clear that, that there are particles that make up matter, that there are particles that convey forces, and that there are different such particles for each of the forces. So we've got the, we're just talking about gluons for the strong nuclear force that binds quarks together in protons and uh, neutrons and, and other particles. There is also the weak nuclear force, the weirdest of all the forces, I think it's fair to say. It has its own bosons that convey it. Those are? The uh, W bosons and the Z bosons. <laughs> I don't I'm know. sure everybody's heard of all those. I don't, I don't know if we have time to get into the... Um, the strangeness of the weak nuclear force. Then finally, there's this other force that really seems like an outlier in a way, uh, gravity. The fourth force, you could say, and it has a hypothetical particle that conveys it, too. Well, this, this is interesting, uh, you know, just, just in terms of my own work. So all these force particles have been, I think it's fair to say, have been discovered except for the force particle that would convey the gravitational force, which would be called a graviton. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it turns out, the dark matter candidate that my group is looking for at the LHC is an even more theoretically abstruse version of that. So there's this thing called supersymmetry where every particle has a partner in the shadow world of, of, of supersymmetry. And so what we're looking for is not the graviton, but the supersymmetric partner of the graviton <laughs> called the gravitino. So that yes, that's, that's the world in which particle <laughs> physicists live. But it, you know, there, there's strong reason to believe that that well, I shouldn't say it, it's not unlikely that if, if gravitinos exist, if supersymmetry exists, this theory which we, we can talk about, which is a very good framework for incorporating dark matter, which we, we know dark matter exists, we just don't know what it is. Supersymmetry is a framework that allows us to create an understanding of what dark matter is. And 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 to then take it from there to try to understand how it shapes the universe, but if, if this supersymmetry turns out to be the way nature works, then we probably will discover the supersymmetric partner of the graviton before we discover the graviton itself. Oh my God! Well, you know, Bruce, I was I was dearly hoping that you wouldn't bring supersymmetry and uh, dark matter into this conversation just yet. Well, I was but... kind of hoping you wouldn't either, but uh, <laughs> so it looks looks like mea culpa. But let's talk about gravity for a moment because it is this uh, force that we all deal with constantly, all the time, and yet uh, it's boson, the particle that might convey it uh, if this whole model holds together and is consistent, hasn't been discovered. I have a basic um, confusion myself because I thought we learned in 1915, thanks to Einstein, that gravity is really a change in spatial geometry, that instead of this thing that Newton thought, this sort of weird pull at a distance, what, what makes masses um, attracted to each other is really uh, that masses alter the shape of space and that therefore when space changes in certain ways, things sort of roll in, in new directions. 
And so gravity becomes this model of spatial geometry. How is that a force at all, and why does it need a particle? Well, um, why is that a force, and how is it, why does it need a particle are two separate questions. So Yeah, let's do uh, both of them. It's a force just because... Uh, so let's consider uh, two people that are two-dimensional. They're both flat. That's right. So they can they only see in two dimensions, but they find themselves un- unwittingly. They find themselves on the surface of a three-dimensional sphere, mm-hmm. and they're at the equator, and they're going to start going off parallel. They're going to follow lines of longitude. North south. North south. So they're going to go parallel. So they're at the equator, and they're separated by say a mile. Mm-hmm. And they're going to start going north on these lines of uh, longitude, and they happily go along. And what they don't see is that they're curving through the third dimension towards the North Pole. And what happens as you go towards the North Pole on two lines of longitude? You move together. Mm-hmm. So they move together, but they don't see that they're moving together. Mm-hmm. So they conclude that there's some force drawing exactly. them together. Exactly. So, so that's that's how you turn geometry into a force. And uh, you know, Mach and Einstein um, developed this theory called general relativity, which is completely consistent with observation, except for one thing. It's not consistent with quantum mechanics. Well, this is, uh, again, um, you know, maybe outside the scope of a conversation about the standard model, because the standard model doesn't manage to reconcile gravity with quantum mechanics, which is why people have created a whole new field called string theory at a, a much smaller scale than even the standard model goes uh, to try to try to bring those two things together. But just uh, maybe to satisfy my question on some superficial level, um, again, my understanding of general relativity is it says that mass changes the shape of space. Mass bends space. Space, on the other hand, tells mass how to move, so that objects moving in a curved space move differently than they move in a per- perfectly flat space. And there, it creates this sort of illusion in a way of, of a kind of a pull between the two objects when it's really just the, the contours of space that objects are following, right? When we get the moon orbiting the Earth, it's following basically a kind of, um, you know, circular well in space. It's, 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 it's like a, a basketball going around the rim of a hoop, right? Circling around the rim of a hoop in a way. Okay. Right? Is, is that okay for a layperson? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So so how does a graviton, how would a graviton, this special, you know, boson particle that would convey gravity, how would that fit into a picture of uh, the geometry of space? Uh, you have gone beyond my pay grade, <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, <coughs> no, I, I mean, I don't have a, a deep enough understanding of string theory to, to convey that. Uh, I, I just don't know. Well, folks, we're going to leave the graviton aside, but we are going to reiterate that so far in, in our sort of stepwise uh, description of the standard model of particle physics, we, we have made it clear that there are these particles that make up matter called fermions. Those are the ones that a lot of us are really familiar with, like electrons and uh, quarks, which in turn make up things like protons and neutrons. And then there are things called bosons, which are the field quanta, that is the kind of medium of exchange of forces, bosons like photons and uh, gluons that basically convey these fundamental forces and cause things to affect each other, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have this thing called a field. Now, we, have, we've, we haven't really defined a field yet. Well, um, a, a field is a potentiality of space to exert an influence on an object 
that gets into that region of space. So, uh, you know. Hmm. Well, a, well, let's say an electrical field. An electrical field spreads out through space, right? And if you happen to be a particle with an electric charge, you know, like a, an electron with a negative charge or a proton with a positive charge, and you're wandering through this field, the field's going to affect you, right? Yes. It might make you go in this direction or that direction. So Great. a field is sort of like a, a, it's a force that's sort of distributed in a way that can act on things that, that wander through it. Yeah, that, that, that's right. It's, it's, um, it's an influence. It's that, an that's, influence. That's distributed in some way. And mm -hmm. it has, it, it's not just a construct. I mean, that, <clears throat> the fascinating thing is that uh, when Faraday introduced it, at, at that point, it really, you could go either way. You could go with a field. Or you could go with action at a distance. So you have two electrical part, electrically charged particles influence each other. Uh, and you could say, well, one is just acting at a distance on the other. Or you could say, well, according to Faraday, one sets up a field that goes throughout space and the other particle is in that field. So you have no longer action at a distance. You just have a local interaction between the field and the particle. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so it was just a construct. But later on, when Maxwell came in, we realized that the field itself is physical. The field itself has energy, and the field can create self-sustaining entities just that are purely made of, of fields and not no particles at all, and, and that's what light is. So a field is a physical entity, uh, and that, that is very fascinating. That, that, um, that, that, that's something that I think a lot of people tend to forget as, as they go through in, in, in physics uh, it just just how profound that is that the field itself is a, is a physical entity and, and and that of course is what you know the the quantum field the people that wanted to make the quantize the fields latched on because you know they they made the fields even more physical by being making them composed of these particles or the potentiality to exchange these particles so you have two electrons interacting um you have uh, you know, in the Faraday picture, you have a field set up by one and the other particle is in that field and it gets pulled upon. And then in the Feynman picture, um, that when that particle comes into the influence of the other particle, it's because it has now a certain probability to absorb a photon that's being emitted by the other particle. And th these two pictures are completely consistent. One is a classical field and the other is a quantum mechanical field. So Richard Feynman, great 20th century physicist, died, what, about 15 years ago or so? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Now, he helped define this, this, this world of um, quantum electrodynamics, right? That's, that's the term for it, the, the quantum right. description of electromagnetism in which there is no action at a distance. Nothing over here magically affects something over there. Instead, it's direct contact. It's a very intimate world where if an electron with a negative charge comes along and there's another electron with a negative charge and they repel each other, that's because a photon has moved between them. It's always something literally going from here to here and touching something else. Yeah? Or at least if we think of it that way, we'll get the right answer. That's what Feynman <laughs> said. If we think of it that way, we get the right answer. He didn't say is. Okay. I don't think he said is. So, so a reminder, folks, everything that Bruce Schum and I say today is in air quotes when it comes to talking about reality. We're all talking about how physicists understand or work with reality at the quantum level. We're not talking about some ideal reality out there. Is that Kantian enough for you? Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Emmanuel. <laughs> 
but the the uh, the model that has been worked out, and the one that's the subject of our conversation today, is one in which um, there's no action at a distance. There's no spooky things going on uh, with with nothing between them. It's all about stuff bumping into other stuff. And uh, when two particles affect each other, it's because a third intermediary particle has sort of traveled between them, right? And uh, conveyed the force from one to the other. Uh, except when you get into the realm of the strong force over the scale of the proton, then we can't think of it that way. I'm but, beginning uh, to see a pattern here. Every, yeah, every Everything you say is, is not quite right. It's not yeah, quite right. Yeah. Everything I say has an exception to it. Yeah. And uh, it, it makes me want to... Um, Get rid of me. I, I know. Well, Hold no, <laughs> no. No, it makes me want to jump ahead to maybe the, the biggest uh, question of all uh, in my mind about all of this. And that is that the real goal of guys like you is, is to simplify what seems like a dizzying world, you know, a world in which there are countless things going on and all kinds of manifestations. But you guys are trying to boil it down to some very, very well-defined and, and a relatively small number of equations and principles at work. Yeah, well, ideally one. Ideally yeah, one. That's right. Uh, and and yet the weird and what seems to me almost like perverse thing about nature is that every time, if I'm a good example in this conversation, every time you come to a generalization that seems to apply to everything and everything's getting simple, there seems to be some new exception or some well, new wrinkle that pops up. That, that's because the ultimate generalization in which everything is presented in a simple light is one that's somewhat mathematical. And what we're talking about are... Um, different facets of that underlying generalization. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so when I fail in my generalizations to eliminate all the footnotes and exceptions that you keep adding, it's not because there isn't a nice, clean, mathematical description that, that unifies all this stuff. That's right. Oh, okay, okay. Well, um, in short order, let's talk about some of those generalizations, uh, you know, and give um, me and, and listeners maybe the satisfaction of hearing this all wrapped up. Before we get there, though, uh, I want to talk about particles a little bit further. How many really fundamental particles, that is, particles that are indivisible, that aren't breakable into smaller particles, do we know about at this point? Uh, <clears throat> there are six types of leptons. So those would be the electron and its heavier cousins, muon and tau. Mm -hmm. And their corresponding neutrinos, the electron, tau, and muon neutrinos, mm -hmm. that's six. There's six types of quarks, uh, up, down, strange, uh, charm, top, bottom. Uh, there are, uh, and then there are the exchange particles that we talked about, photons, the photon, the W bosons, two of them, the Z boson, and the gluon, which is actually, there's actually eight of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's it. I mean, we think there are more and we're trying as hard as we can to discover more. The Higgs would be another if it were discovered, but at this point, there's no concrete evidence, no no statistically significant evidence for it. So I think it is those N, where uh, N was about uh, 20. Yeah, roughly 20 uh, identified, and uh, maybe a couple more postulated, like the Higgs boson, maybe some, maybe some dark matter particle. Well, if... To get back to supersymmetry, supersymmetry super said that would say that for each of these that I just stated, there is a partner, a supersymmetric mm. partner. That would simply double mm. them. Mm. Um, 
And then, of course, we have uh, antimatter counterparts for every single one of these guys. So yeah. for the electron, we have the positron. That is an oppositely charged particle. That's right. So every every particle in the menagerie has a kind of doppelganger uh, antimatter particle. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Except for particles that are their own antiparticles, like the photon. <laughs> but uh, most, almost all of them. <laughs> I mean, if you got if you got if you have no charge, then you can't change your charge. That, that's a simple. I, I, all all the charged particles. I'm, I'm laughing because every attempt I, I make to like uh, come up with some really concise statement has a uh, uh, yes, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I know. I did it again. I no, that's again. cool. That's cool. But for a while there, I thought we were going to get really simple and say, oh, there's like five, you know, fundamental particles. Everything else can be made from these building blocks. But in fact, it's it's more complicated than that. There's maybe 20 or so. They have their supersymmetric counterpart possibly that's still hypothetical they definitely have their antimatter counterparts and then you know just to further you know complicate things um there are these things called virtual particles well virtual particles are just uh <clears throat> th th that doesn't give you more particles it's just taking the particles we have and casting them in a slightly different way and it, this comes back to the uncertainty principle um you can if you don't know a, a particle's position then you can know its momentum very well and vice versa. Well, there's also a corresponding one for time and energy. So if something lives for a very short time, it can have uh, uh, energy that uh, otherwise it couldn't have. Mm -hmm. And so you can have particles created um, as long as they disappear quick enough. And so that's what these exchange particles are, that when we when we have an electron repelling another electron, through the electric force, it's because they exchange a photon. It's virtual. It has more energy than it's allowed to, but only for a very brief instant. And uh, so it's not that we have a whole different set of particles, just we use them in a different way. Mm. Um, that's one of the amazing things about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Again, a popular understanding is that it just tells us how much we can know. But the way you just described it, in a way, it, it, it tells us, how things can be. Uh, you say there's an inverse relationship not only between position and momentum, but there's an inverse relationship between time and energy. And energy can be mass. Mass is a special form of energy. That's right. Um, and so it says, well, gee, because of this inverse relationship, if the time is really, really short, then the, the, the energy, i.e. mass, can deviate from its standard amount. So you can have a photon that, you know, the rule is a photon has no mass at all, zero. You can have a photon for a brief instant that has mass. You can break the rules for a really short time, according to Heisenberg. Uh, that's correct. That is just, like, so amazing. Now, why can you explain to me, though, why you needed to even invoke this rule-breaking, why you needed virtual particles? Why isn't it good enough to have a massless photon you know, sort of bouncing between two electrons, conveying the electromagnetic force that way. Well, if there's anything, any principle that's sacrosanct in the physics of uh, the standard model, and, and mo mostly all physics, let, let me let me just say, for in all physics, and uh, in the spirit of getting away from from minor obscure qualifications, yes, thank it you. is the notion of the conservation of energy and and momentum. Um, whatever momentum. I think everybody has a pretty good idea of what energy is. 
since they pay their energy bill every every month. Um, so energy can be neither created nor destroyed. And uh, when you have a uh, an exchange of a, of a photon between two charged objects that are you know they're they're repelling each other, so they're exchanging photons in this picture. Um, that uh, that photon has to have a different mass than the photon really does in order to conserve really energy and momentum um, and so in order to have this process take place you have to violate the um, intrinsic energy of the photon you know you have to violate you have to give it an intrinsic energy a mass that's different than it really has mm. and you can do that as long as you do as long as that photon lives short enough that Heisenberg uncertainty principle allows for that. You know, it, it, it's interesting reading about the history of physics where physicists run into a problem uh, where the numbers don't add up. You know, for instance, you know, the conservation of energy doesn't seem to apply to a particular interaction. They always then come up with a way of bending the rules a little bit this way or that way in some logical fashion. Like, whoa, Heisenberg lets us say that photon had mass. The former rule that a photon has no mass can be broken just long enough to make this whole thing add up. I mean, uh, there's some amazing stories in your book of rules, seeming rules, finding ways around them, finding ways to twist things a little bit so everything works out in the end. Well, so this is a principle called Occam's Razor uh, related to that principle. I mean, you have two, you have a problem. You have some data that, that confronts uh, you in a certain way. And clearly you're going to have to do something. <clears throat> and what what you do is you do you, you you tend to take the path that's going to be the least disruptive yeah to to the underlying principle now maybe at the end of the day you can't do that and of course that's what happened with einstein's special relativity uh there was no way to to, to take a, a path of least resistance there you had to completely throw out your intuitive notions of space and time but for the most part you have these principles that you um, are fairly confident. Well, you, you you have two different principles. You have some data that that confronts that confronts you, and you have one principle you can relax, energy conservation, or another principle that you can relax, um, you know, that allows you to violate energy conservation, but it introduces a wave nature to to matter. Well, those those are both pretty profound changes, but it turns out that. Um, that the latter is a little more easy to incorporate and work with. And so you, you go with the latter. I mean, it's not that uh, we're unwilling to think about energy conservation violation. In fact, we do know that there are contexts in which energy conservation is actually violated. It's a very easy context. The universe has so many photons in it, basically. It has so many particles of light in it. And as it expands, those photons lose energy. And so the energy of the universe is it's not conserved overall. What? What? It's um, not conserved no, overall? No, the energy is decreasing. As, as the universe expands, the overall energy decreases. In fact, strictly speaking, energy is only conserved in flat space-time. I mean, the, technically, that's one, what one would say. Well, this um, process of physics, and, and you know, I, I, I know that in, in a way, um, I sense that you were resistant to get all mushy and philosophical, and you wanted to stick to nuts and bolts here, but um, I'm afraid that's not going to be 
what happens because I'm once again going to wax philosophical. Be my guest. All right. Well, the, the process of physics that, again, as an outsider, uh, I've sort of watched uh, through accounts such as yours and, and, and uh, learned about from people like you is one in a sense of what to let go of. It's one about, you know, what are you really attached to and what are you willing to jettison? So, for instance, Einstein, you know, confronted with a seeming paradox that is the constant nature of the speed of light relative to other things, came up with relativity, which meant letting go of this notion of space and time as being some absolute invariable yeah. measure, right? right? Instead, they're relative. Right. They, they change under certain circumstances. They're all, all, all a matter observer of... Observer-dependent. Observer-dependent, a point-of-view thing. Um, Einstein lets go of that. Um, earlier physicists had to let go of the idea of the ether, this invisible substance through which waves travel everywhere. Um, you're describing uh, a process where, uh, you know, if the conservation of energy doesn't seem to apply, what are you going to let go of? Conservation of energy or maybe the rules of arithmetic? Well, I know that's the last thing that physicists will ever give up, the rules of arithmetic, right? Well, you, that you can't give up. <laughs> you can't because give the, up. The, those are... are that's the difference between science and mathematics. Mathematics um, is is a, a field based on proof, and there's no such thing as proof in science. Uh huh. There's only supporting evidence. Uh huh. So there, there's a, a, a qualitative difference. Right. Well, what are the things right now in physics that nobody wants to give up? Conservation. Funding. Of- <laughs> uh, so, uh, well, uh, what are the things? Uh, well, you, you said that, that, that there's some flexibility in, in – um, there's some give in the conservation of energy, which I thought maybe was the bedrock principle. Uh, well, it is. It's just that um, sometimes in, in, in a particular context, uh, it's not. I mean, physicists are not, are, are not unwilling to give up anything. I mean, what they're unwilling to give up is scientific empirical process, mm-hmm. so, you know, as, such as they, as they use it. I mean – the, you know, the scientists want, to the extent possible, they want to confront their ideas with data. In physics, it's very possible. In other fields, it's less possible, and you, and you do what you can. Um, sometimes you, you have to put forward models and, and do the best you can. But in, in physics, we tend to say that we, we're very strict about this because we have the luxury of being so. Um, that uh, the only thing we don't want to give up is that if you come up with a theory, it needs to be testable. Mm-hmm. Well, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have this idea that, you know, a physicist confronted with, again, a seeming paradox with an anomaly generally says, well, look, I know this is true, or I feel like this is really true, so I'm going to look for problems over here. I'm not going to question this part of the equation or this part of the theory. So, for instance, right now we have a long-standing problem reconciling gravity, as Einstein described it, with the quantum world, you know, as Heisenberg, Bohr, Dirac, and others described it. Um, And so people aren't saying, let's jettison relativity. Let's just throw out relativity. Forget Einstein. You know, that's what's going to fall by the wayside, right? They're working really hard, dedicating their careers to preserving relativity and making it fit with quantum mechanics. Well, using Einstein's classical theory of relativity, as a guideline because it has been supported by mm-hmm. profound mm-hmm. profoundly supported by evidence mm-hmm. um not only that but we now turn that around and we use 
general relativity as a detection methodology. So we look for the bending of starlight as it goes around through this curved space-time to use uh, as a way to, to discern the d distribution of, of matter and energy in, in the universe. Einstein's theory, I mean, you know, New Newton's theory uh, philosophically, conceptually, is incorrect. But uh, we still teach it to our engineers mm. and, and, and ask that they use it um, because it works on most scales. And, and uh, you know, <clears throat> again, as is often said, I mean, Einstein's theory is not a rejection of, of Newton's work. It's an extension of Newton's work. And so you have a theory <clears throat> that works. It, it, no theory is anything more than a model. And as you get data that confronts it and, and calls it into question, you just need to refine the model, or you know, sometimes you need to throw the model out. But in general, <clears throat> I mean, things something like Einstein's general relativity, this theory that's associated with the curvature of space and time, um, it works so well that that we use it as guidance for developing the quantum theory. Now, the quantum theory has to fold back in the limit where quantum mechanical effects are not important. Has to fold back into special relativity that you need to retain that as a limit so you need some some overall um deeper more complex theory that and its limit simplifies if you will mm. into the theory of special relativity which is i mean the theory of general relativity which anybody who studied will tell you is not a tremendously simple theory in, of, in and of itself hence a great challenge well bruce we, we've gotten this far at least um you know minus our philosophical detours into the uh, standard model of particle physics, and that is that we've we've managed to nail down the fact that we have a certain number of particles. Some of them haven't been discovered yet, but they may be out there, and maybe guys like you will discover them. Uh, we have forces that are conveyed by special kinds of particles. The influence of these forces is spread out in these things called fields that sort of envelop us, right? Envelop everything. Yes. And we've got a mathematics for describing how things interact that preserves generally with a few... <laughs> special exceptions, uh, the conservation of energy, a kind of balance sheet, you know, for examining all these interactions. So we're starting to come up with this marvelously consistent and uh, very, very precise picture of the universe. We've still got some things to explain, and uh, I'm going to propose that we do it in part two of this conversation in another show. Are you game for that? Absolutely, yes. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Okay, audience. Do stay tuned because part two of the standard model of particle physics and beyond with Professor Bruce Schum is coming up in our next show. Bruce Schum, he's professor of physics at UC Santa Cruz and author of Deep Down Things, The Breathtaking Beauty of Particle Physics. And as promised, Bruce Schum will be back next week right here on the 7th Avenue Project. So join us then. And in the meantime, check out our website, 7thAvenueProject.com where you can listen to past shows and learn more. I'm Robert Polly, signing off.